0: This morning, again, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, 5, and 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you shall be on your heart. Amen. You may be seated. The children are going to be dismissed in a minute, but first we're going to do our Question. Okay. This is question 3 of the catechism they're working through. So those of the children listen up. Well, all the ki- all the kids, adults too. How many persons are there in God? Okay? How many persons are there in God? Does anybody want to answer that? There are 3. The question the answer is there are 3 persons in one God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Children are dismissed for their classes. We are continuing our study in the Apostles' Creed. And... At this point, we are in the second part of the. If we have the original one that we had handout, it was divided into six parts. And the second part is I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And so that's our focus of our study this morning. We start with the phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe. Let's start right there. What does it mean to believe something here as far as what the Scripture is trying to say? You know, we have a lot of things. You know, we'll use the believe and sometimes we say, I believe it might rain tomorrow. Okay? That's a wishful hope or a you might. The other side of the wishful hope would be. I believe. I believe it will not rain tomorrow. Okay. So either way, that's we, that's not a firm, positive belief. And in Humboldt County, that's not a guarantee, no matter which way you look at it. So the idea is, is the, I believe, is a firm understanding. This is something that believers would say. I believe. This is what makes you a believer. Your confession, your belief in your heart of who Christ is. He's my Savior. He's the Son of God. He has redeemed me through the cross. These are the things that go with the word I believe. And so we start with this confidence then. I confidently believe in Jesus Christ. This isn't a wishy hope, but a firm belief. And to understand who Jesus Christ is, I think we need to understand, uh, possibly, uh, first off, the real reality. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Looking more at his humanity at this point, some would say the historical Jesus. I had a uh, college professor in a uh, Western Civ class. that was then. His uh, one of his early statements, uh, first statements in in the class was, "If you are a Christian, I'm going to offend you before this course is over." Because he would accept a historical Jesus, but he would not accept a Jesus is God. And he made it very clear. And he says, "I have no intention of debating that." And if you uh, feel like that's a, a problem, he says, I, You'll know when those particular classes are coming up. You can choose to uh, miss them, and you'll, I won't count you absent. I mean, so he was straightforward about it. What he was saying, though, is he does believe in a historical Jesus. And that is probably pretty much common today, uh, even in the most adamant non-believer, Christian, non-Christian people. They will say, "Yeah, there was a historical Jesus. There's evidence of that, but no, we're not going to accept him as Christ." This historical Jesus of Nazareth, he was indeed the son of David. We have genealogies in in the the scriptures for, that are given, and it's interesting. In Matthew uh, chapter one, starts right off with the genealogy. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so it starts off with Abraham as the father of Isaac and goes on. And finally, it concludes in verse 16, and Jacob the father of Joseph. Now listen to this carefully though. Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. doesn't say the son of Joseph here. He says, "The husband of Mary. Joseph was the husband of Mary, of who was born Jesus Christ, called the Christ." I should say. In the Gospel of Luke, in chapter three, again the genealogy is is recorded, uh, starting with uh, the twenty-third verse. Says Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about thirty years of age, being the son, uh, far as as was supposed. In other words, that's what the people knew, the son of Joseph, the son of Hella, and it goes on through the, the the history of of this genealogy in Luke. And notice in the thirty first verse, it says the son of Nathan, the son of David. The reason why I point that out is is that it's important to see Jesus was the prophesied son of David that would come and rule in his throne and ultimately rule forever. And so that picture is here. By the way, what is interesting is as you go through the genealogies and you'll notice a few similarities but mostly different people in the genealogies. And one's first comment is to say, okay, which one is the accurate one? Well, they're both accurate. One is of Joseph, which is found in Matthew. By the way, that genealogy is what would be the legal genealogy because Jesus, His Father, as far as uh, legality is concerned, would be the one of the, the Father here on earth, Joseph. He called Him His Son. He trained Him. He raised Him. Okay, so his his legal genealogy would trace through with his father to David. That gives him the right to the throne of David. But it's also the second genealogy is believed to be Mary's genealogy. So his legal genealogy and his true genealogy, if you will, his rightful genealogy, uh, is is both come down to David. So He truly is the, the Son of David. Uh, he is, for that matter, then, the royal Messiah. He uh, The belief was, by a lot of the Hebrew people, and including the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and, and the Herodians, all of them, they, they were looking for a Messiah. Those who were faithful in looking for a Messiah were looking for a Messiah that was going to take the rule literally and start the kingdom of david again in their time in the time that jesus would come in in his lifespan and so what they were looking for was the messiah who was going to kick the romans out basically and even the apostles were still in that mode after all of His ministry, after all that was, was done and accomplished, after the death, burial, and resurrection, prior, just moments prior to His ascension, this is uh, what, what is said by the uh, apostles in the chapter of Acts. It says, "...so when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom of Israel?" And He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. No, that wasn't His purpose to come and kick out Rome. His purpose was to establish His kingdom separate from anything on earth. The kingdom of God. As the son of David, we see him. He's fulfilling the Scriptures in the genealogies and, and he is the expected Messiah. The Messiah, therefore, the idea is that he must come from the son of David. By the way, he must be born in a particular place which is called the city of David, Bethlehem. He's also called the son of man. In the book of Daniel talks about the Son of Man extensively in, in a eschatology format and in the in times format. But it's a heavenly designation, if you will. This is used eighty-four times in Scripture, the Son of Man, eighty-one times by Jesus describing himself. He called himself. The Son of Man. Uh, I just use one example. There's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All have examples of this, but I'm just going to turn to Mark chapter two. The 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 context is uh, the disciples and Jesus are walking through the fields on the Sabbath, and it says that they were taking, it's pretty easy, and I, most of us as kids have done this someplace, where you find a stalk of, of, of wheat, or, or sometimes it's not wheat, but it's, it looks the same, and you go like this and, and push your fingers together, and up and you catch all the kernels in your hand, And, well, you can rub them together. And if it's actual wheat, you can rub them together in the chaff. The outside starts to come off. And you actually can get little pieces of seed, uh, which is the wheat, that you can actually eat. And this is exactly what the disciples did. They were walking through the fields, and they, they grabbed some, and they did this. Well, the strict Pharisees considered that work on the Sabbath. And so that's what they had done. Uh, There was the accusation made that this is the Sabbath. But this is Jesus' response. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man, he's referring to himself at this point, is the Lord even of the Sabbath. By the way, by claiming himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, he is also claiming himself as Lord of creation because Sabbath is tied to the creation by its rest. Okay, so he—it's a, a loaded statement. It was a claim of deity. I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and we go on to to in this looking at this. It says he was, uh, I believe, in Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. Oops, I jumped something here. The Son of God, excuse me, the 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 suffering servant. A, a you know, he was a, a sacrifice. The only begotten Son of our Lord. The suffering servant is the is this picture. Uh, why did Jesus come? Why did he? Empty himself and become flesh. God in flesh. He was both God and flesh, fully God, fully flesh. Okay, and and so as the suffering servant, we need to look at that. And I, the only way for me to to explain it, the easiest way is to go back to the Old Testament, in the Isaiah chapter 53. says that uh, he was a uh, actually goes to verse 15 uh, many uh, kings shall uh, shut their mouths because of him for that which was not been told them they see eyes are opened in other words and that which they have not heard they understand. who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus—that's an interesting by itself, is it? It says he didn't have any particular form or appearance that made him extra special. In other words, you'd look at him and you'd say, "Oh, there's a Semitic Jew." I mean, that would be his characteristics. He looked like a normal Jewish man which kind of puts to, to, uh, out of the, the picture the, a lot of the pictures that the Western world has of Jesus because He wasn't white. Okay. Uh, he was probably olive brown in complexion and uh, He was a, uh, a Semitic Jewish man. Okay. No former majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from men who hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Literally, the word wounded here was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. And this idea of peace and being healed is to mean we are at peace with God. To be at peace with God is to have God look at us and receive us. We cannot be at peace with God except through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And with His stripes we are healed. We are like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. We've sung about it already this morning. His sins, our sins, were on Him on the cross. He was oppressed, that he was afflicted; yet he opened not his mouth. It goes on uh, that he, it says that he, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And and as for the his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked. Somebody who hung on the cross was to be buried sometimes in a group or mass grave with, uh, where criminals had been buried with no marker or anything like that. That was where he should have been buried, but it says it says they, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. He was buried in a rich man's tomb. Okay, so we have... This picture of, of, of Christ in the Old Testament. He is the suffering servant. So these are the the what I was trying to get through was the various thoughts of, of Scripture in reference to identifying Jesus. He's the Son of David, He's the royal Messiah, He's the Son of Man, He is the Suffering Servant, a redeeming sacrifice for all who will confess and believe. It goes on to say that he is the only begotten son our lord The only simply means no other totally unique He is the only son of God Now you're going to go to scripture and find all sorts of terms that say sons of God sons of uh, in reference to other things even even people But when we're talking about this, we're talking about deity. He is the only glorified Son of God. There is no other. The word begotten throws a monkey wrench in this for some cult groups and they jump on it and say, see, He was really born. No, the word begotten here is a term of order. He was the firstborn. The only begotten gives him firstborn status, which means he is heir to all things. And when you get into the book of of, of Romans chapter 8, for instance, it talks about Jesus being heir of all things and us with him being joint heirs with Jesus. Okay? Jesus is heir of all things, all things that are created. When he emptied himself, he set himself apart from that. Authority to be over all that and came and rescued us, redeemed us. Okay? And as a result, he is heir to all creation, to all things. He has firstborn status. In Hebrew culture, that was extremely important. The firstborn male was the heir. Okay? And so, here, Jesus, the heir of all things. Uh,. He is uh, Psalm 2 talks about Him being a sovereign king uh, set up by God. Men are arguing about who's in control and who will rule the earth, and God laughs at them and says, I've already set my king in place. He is the heir. It's already decided. Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, is king. And that's the phrase, our Lord, by the way. He is the Lord. He is sovereignly king. The Lord has ownership of everything. And as believers, He has ownership of us. We went from being owned by sin, confessing and believing in Jesus Christ, being owned by God. We have never not been owned. We may have thought we had great freedoms at various points and various times. You may think you have great freedoms now. But the reality is is that we are owned by God. We belong to Him. Jesus has literally purchased us. And so we are His children, joint heirs. He is our King, our Lord. And you see our there meaning plural. He's the body of Christ. He's our Lord. So there's no other Son. He's unique. He has got the firstborn status, heir to all things, and He is the sovereign King, owner of us all. It is a claim to deity. Jesus is the the substance and essence of God. Remember we went through this and we talked about how the Trinity works. God is one being. The substance, the essence of who God is, is one being. And yet, there are three persons in that essence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think it's appropriate again to read from Colossians. I've I've done this a couple of times, but uh, just looking at Colossians chapter 1, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Again, the idea of firstborn or the only begotten Okay, He is the first of the resurrection, in other words. He is the firstborn of the dead. That in everything, He might be preeminent. Did He have to earn this? It was already His. But in order to bring us into this with Him, He emptied Himself, became a man, even a servant of man, even to the point of dying on the cross, so that He could bring us into His kingdom. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell fully God and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, again that word peace, between uh, peace by the blood of His cross. We are at peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we're close enough to it, I want to take a look at Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things Its claim of deity, Son of Man, Son of God, only begotten Son, goes on to say, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. There are some mysteries in the Bible that we will never fully comprehend. And I'm of the mind that we might even go and say that we may never fully understand this picture even in heaven, I believe we're always going to be in awe of the amazing things God has done. Always. We're going to spend eternity in amazement of who God is, what He has done, and, and what He has created and, 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 and how He has redeemed it. Philippians tells us that he emptied himself, became man. And that he was uh, not only just a man, but a servant to man, ultimately, to the point of the death on the cross. In chapter one of Matthew, we have the the birth of uh, the birth of Jesus Christ, the account of birth of Jesus. Matthew chapter one verse eighteen says, "Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they became came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly." Now understand at this point he's he's not only all he sees is that he has his fiancee who he is not officially married even though they were betrothed, which was a legal document back then, and she was pregnant. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus For he will save his uh, people uh, from their sins. And Jesus basically implies the name Savior in its translation. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Now that's one account. We get into some additional detail with the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1. Starting with the 26th verse. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? There's a lot of people who say that this same word could mean young lady or young maiden. Virgin is what was translated initially and I believe it's extremely important to understand. A woman who has not had a sexual relationship with anyone. I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her. Who, has call, who was called barren. For nothing shall be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angels departed from her. What was awesome was that God didn't leave her stranded with having to try to figure this out in the sense of is this all real or not? Anything like that. He intervened in Zach, uh, uh, Zach, Zachariah and, and uh, Elizabeth's life. Elizabeth was her cousin, an elderly woman who had not had children, and she conceives a son who will be known as John the Baptist. This is Mary basically going to a second cousin and saying, You know, okay, I, I've got to go and see this. And she goes to see Elizabeth. And before they actually greet one another, Elizabeth is at a distance and Mary is in her sight. And it says, the baby in Elizabeth, John, leaped for joy. The miraculous is all around this and people will look at this and say do you really believe all of these things the miraculous i come back to my position 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 the word is god breathed for the purpose of training and upbuilding and bringing up all and it's used in training etc god breathed born of the virgin conceived by the holy spirit How? He doesn't say. People have, I've read some extremely bizarre attempts at trying to describe this. The scripture doesn't give us any more than it is here, and that's all we get. I don't care what theologian looks at this, he's not going to be able to glean more than what is here, other than supposition on his part. R.C. Sproul had this to say about it. He said, Mary is told by the angel Gabriel that she will conceive and bear a son. Mary replies in bewilderment, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel responds, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The context here leaves no room for doubt as to what is being said to Mary. Of Mary's conception and the pregnancy of her cousin Elizabeth, the angel says, for nothing will be impossible with God. The question of impossibility is raised precisely because what has been announced violates the canons of probability. In other words, God did a miracle. Mary is clearly pregnant before they came together. Referring to her and Joseph. The child was conceived through the Holy Spirit. This description along with Joseph's uh, uh, reaction to the whole episode makes it obvious to any clear-minded reader that the intent of the record is to argue that the New Testament record of the virgin birth is false. Is one thing. To argue that it does not teach a virgin birth or that the idea of an uh, of uh, interpolation can only be done via a radical violation of these texts involved. In other words, to try to say anything other than what the text says requires an, an outlandish reassessing of the, what the word says and taking it out of context completely. Scripture makes it clear, conceived by the Holy Spirit. How beyond our understanding. A God who can simply speak everything into existence is more than capable, is what is implied. Nothing is impossible with God. By the way, I want to add this side note to this. There are different sects of Christianity who believe that Mary never had sexual intercourse that she remained perpetually virgin. Scripture does not uh, adhere to that in any way. In Mark chapter 6, well let's, let's let's look at it. Mark chapter 6 verse 3. I'll start with verse 1, keep it in context here. Jesus went away from there and came to His hometown, which would have been Nazareth, and His disciples followed Him. And on the Sabbath He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard Him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by His hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, And Judas and Simon, four brothers. And are not his sisters here with us? Sisters, plural, meaning at least two. A typical Hebrew family at that time. Large family. And so he has at least six siblings here. Now... The scripture, the people that, that profess that Mary be, remained perpetually virgin say that these were Joseph's sons from a previous marriage. What they don't bring forth and they simply ignore, but know, many of them, that it is true, is this immediately puts Jesus as fifth-born son. Legally, and not heir to the throne of David. She went on and had a normal relationship with her husband. They had sons and daughters. How do you bring this to a summary? It's kind of hard. But I was reading an article from John Piper, the Desiring God website, a while back, and I copied it thinking I'll be using this. This part of the article reads, What exactly do we mean when we say that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? We mean at least five things. First, Jesus was born by the direct action of God. It's clear that no one was expecting anything like this. Joseph assumes the worst until the angel intervenes, and Mary is shocked and mystified by Gabriel's words. The Jews in general had no conception of a baby born to a virgin who would deliver them. It happened because God willed it to happen, and for no other reason. God did it this way because He chose to do it this way. A virgin gives birth by the sovereign choice of the Almighty God. There is no other explanation. Second, no man was involved in the process. Not Joseph, not a Roman soldier, not any other man. Third, Jesus had a human mother and no human father. Fourth, Jesus is thus fully human and fully divine. He is fully human because He comes forth from Mary's womb. He is fully divine because He is conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is not half human and half divine. He is the God-man. One person possessing two natures, God incarnate and human flesh. And fifth, He is therefore without sin. And uh, it goes on, Luke one thirty-five calls Him the Holy One, meaning that He will be born without any taint of sin. He has no inherited sin from Adam. No sin nature. Nothing in Him that will cause Him to sin. He is holy in the truest and deepest meaning of that term. There is no sin in Him or about Him. Here's another way to state the same truth in order for Christ to be our Savior. Three conditions must be met. He must be a man. An angel could not die for our sins. He must truly share our humanity. He must be an infinite man. Mere mortal could not bear the infinite price that must be paid for our sins. And he must be an innocent man. A sinner could not die for the sins of others. The virgin birth guarantees that our Lord fulfills all three conditions. Because he is born of Mary, he is fully human. Because he is conceived by the Holy Spirit, he is fully God. And because he is born holy, he is sinless in thought, word, and deed. Thus he fully qualified to be the Savior. And by the way, in those three statements, he managed to put to rest almost all the cults. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the virgin birth. What a powerful way God has intervened into His creation in order to put us in a position even at this point to be able to say that if we confess with our mouths and believe in our heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. As we approach communion, I want to read one more once again from Isaiah 53. Something already read, but just to to emphasize it. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Let's have our communion song. And while we're singing, uh, if you would come forward and pick up your communion. We have the cuffs on this side and the packets on this side. And... uh, Hold them until we've all been served and we'll share together. Those of you who have the packets, the removal of the top gives you the bread and then the removal of the second lid gives you the cup. The Gospel of Mark, it's written, And as the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it. And He gave it to them and said, Take, this is My body. Let's share in the bread together. And Jesus took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, and they drank of it. And He said to them, This is My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Let us share the cup. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to be here to fellowship together, to encourage one another, to share in Your Word and prayer together, to worship together in song and, and uh, just all that you, you are to us, Lord. It's so amazing so amazing to think the God of all creation became man, God-man, in order to bring us into the kingdom of God. Thank You so much for Your love, Your mercy, and Your grace. We worship You and praise You in Jesus' name. Would you stand as we close and before we sing our last song, just a reminder we have the harvest party from 2 to 4 today, and they still may need some help putting stuff together, I don't know. Uh, But if uh, you come back at at 2 for the harvest party, uh, it should be a lot of fun. So let's sing
1: together. the Father, mighty and eternal Lord. He alone is the Creator, forming all things by His Word. I be
0: awesome that he will see us as those with no condemnation because we rest in Christ Jesus. Wonderful thoughts. Lord bless you. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Don't forget the harvest party at 2 o'clock. It's fun for adults as much as it is for kids.